and weird. I'm here with Costanza Eliana Chine. Uh, pronouns are she, her. Uh, Costanza is a brown Latine decolonial educator, journalist, producer, speaker, activist, mental wellness advocate with over 11 years of experience in the wellness industry and over 400 years of training in yoga, trauma, and anti-racism. She began teaching and consulting after noticing a need for anti-racist and decolonial advocacy in the wellness industry. She now teaches people how to decolonize their wellness practices, create equity for people of color, and enact anti-racist principles in their daily lives. Hello. Hi, thanks for having me. (laughs) I'm really excited to have you on. I think that um, what we're going to talk about today is going to be useful for lots of different people. And yeah, I think that a lot of people are now starting to realize that they need to include anti-racist policies in their work. Um, So thank you for being here. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely been a a journey. When I started in wellness, I started with a very limited understanding of, you know, what I was learning, who I was learning from. And, you know, over the years and through lived experience and all of that, I've learned a lot. And that's what I'm hoping, you know, to give out to other people as well. So, you know, we're all learning together, but um, those of us who have a certain lived experience can definitely share from our viewpoint. Yeah. So I'm curious if you could share your story on how you, like you in the bio, it says like you realized you needed to shift over to that. I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, so my wellness journey was really a, now having the proper language for it, it really was a trauma response. I uh, moved to the United States when I was eight years old, so um, I do have somewhat of an immigrant's experience, even though Puerto Rico is a colony of the U.S., so it's not, you know, technically on paper, I'm not considered an immigrant, but when you go from one culture to a drastically different culture, you have to make a huge move thousands of miles, um, learn a new language, learn new customs, learn the Pledge of Allegiance. Like all of these things are not easy. It's not a walk in the park. And it's, um, it feels very much like you're, you're a foreigner, you're an immigrant. And so for Puerto Ricans, it's a definitely a unique type of experience. But um, yeah, that's, that, that was what I was kind of thrust into. And having to learn a new language and a new culture was a shock and it created a lot of traumatic experiences. And I don't think that my little eight-year-old brain knew how to handle that. And so I I created a lot of self-destructive habits over the years, especially in my teenage uh, years and going into my 20s. Um, I was very unhealthy, very unwell. I was um, deeply, you know, traumatized and deeply depressed and um you know having an immigrant's experience definitely creates a sense of um frustration and confusion especially for children um and being a person of color having that you know experience of you know racism and xenophobia 
also created a lot of anxiety and, you know, just a lot of stress. And so the way that I handled that in my teens and in my um, 20s was to completely disassociate and try to assimilate as much as I could um, and really oscillated between assimilation and, you know, really holding on to my culture mm-hmm. um, and did that all through my teens and through my 20s. And it created such a like tumultuous environment in my brain that um, I ended up just, you know, self-medicating through alcohol and did a lot of partying, um, was drinking, binge drinking was my thing. So I wouldn't necessarily drink at home. So I thought I don't have a problem. I'm not an alcoholic because I don't drink at home necessarily outside of like, you know, a bottle of wine here and there. Um, But I, you know, now in hindsight, I definitely was an alcoholic. I was drinking probably three to five nights out of the week. And it wasn't just drinking. It was drinking to the point of passing out, of blacking out. Um, People constantly needed to take me home or call a taxi. Um, There were many times when I didn't even know how I got home. And, um, you know, and I was sick. I was very sick. I was very skinny. I probably had some liver damage. And, um, And so when I started looking into alternatives, because I was also very, very broke and <laughs> couldn't afford a lot, definitely couldn't afford therapy. And therapy wasn't really a thing that my culture subscribed to. And so, um, you know, a lot of celebrities at the time were talking about yoga and how much it helped them and how much meditation was helping them. And that's how I kind of started my wellness journey was by way of what I was seeing was working for other people, quote unquote, and, um, and started uh, you know, just trying to get myself up off of the alcohol, um, trying to get myself into things that seemed to be a lot healthier um, habits and just retraining myself to um, not be so dependent on uh, something that was so toxic for me, which was the alcohol and the partying, just the partying lifestyle in general. Yeah. Um, and so when I, when I did yoga, I did it in a very misinformed way. It was very much like go to a studio, um, you know, learn from the teachers there who perhaps weren't necessarily teaching yoga necessarily as, as it's meant to be taught. It was very much physical based, uh, started off with Ashtanga yoga, uh, moved on to Shivananda yoga, which is where I got my training from. Um, and then ended up doing a mixture of vinyasa and shivananda. Um, but it, it took me a long time to realize that I really had just replaced one obsession with another. Mm. Um, and most alcoholics and most addicts tend to do that. Um, one seems healthier than the other because you're not necessarily torturing your body as much as you used to. Um, but I really was obsessed <laughs> because I... I personally, I needed to get out of this mental struggle that I was living in. And, um, and what I realized now is that what I really needed to learn um, was where my trauma was actually coming from. It wasn't coming from the party lifestyle. I was leaning on the party lifestyle um, to heal certain parts of myself that were struggling with colonization, that were struggling with assimilation, that were struggling with um, loss of my culture or a distancing from my culture and my home and, um, you know, racism and xenophobia and how I really wasn't dealing with any of those things. 
um, and living in a culture that really gaslights people of color into thinking, oh, this isn't a racist country. You're not actually dealing with racism on a daily basis. Um, you know, it, it can make a person, you know, just go crazy. And so uh, what I was doing with yoga is um, I really was replacing the alcohol, that sense of um, disassociating in a, in a way, that sense of like trying to numb the pain. I was re using yoga as a way to continue to disassociate, but disassociate in a way that felt very spiritual, meaning that I was attempting to get closer to healing, but not necessarily quite getting there. Um, and I was using another person's culture in order to get there, which also felt very distant for me. And so over the years, what I've had to learn is that uh, yoga was not the problem. Alcohol was not the problem. The problem was that I wasn't um, getting down to the root of what my issues were. And so slowly and gradually, I have learned to use some of the tools from um, the yogic practice um, and a lot of the tools from my own culture that have allowed me to get to a point where I feel a lot healthier than where I was before. And it took 11 years, close to 12 years to get there. Um, but I feel now that through reclaiming my own culture's practices, through reclaiming my own culture's indigenous practices, um, healing modalities that don't look westernized and they don't look Eastern, right? They look very specific to the Caribbean. Um, that has, you know, just allowed me to get into a place where I don't feel like I have to pretend to be healthy. I, healthy looks different for me and it looks very specific for me. Um, and that feels like a really good place to be in. That's amazing. Um, I feel like I have so many questions now um, from that story, but I am really curious. So at what point or how did you start to reclaim your culture? Because I know for a lot of POC, I'm, even I'm Jewish. So even my culture, like we assimilated, I don't know half of the stuff that my ancestors did, but like how do you how do you go about that or how if you recommend if you have practices for people or just how did you do that yeah i mean it, it takes a lot of research and a lot of patience because um for you're right for certain people the information um is very muddy um there's also a lot of gatekeeping with certain cultures and rightly so because they're they don't want their practices to be appropriated um, and so it does take a lot of seeking. It takes a lot of patience. Um, and you have to have the right intention. I always tell people, no matter what their identity is, no matter what their race is or their ethnicity is, you have to go into the reclamation work with the right intention. Because if you're going into it with the intention of um, perhaps capitalizing off of it, you know, teaching it to other people for financial gain, you're already starting at a bad point. What you want to do is make sure that you're doing reclamation work for the right reasons, not so that you can appropriate a culture, um, not so that you can you know, um, try to get into a circle that perhaps has ousted you in the past or that you feel like is a trendy thing to do. Mm. I think a lot of people get into reclamation work because they think it'll... Um, it'll give them something that they don't necessarily have, right? Like it'll fill an empty hole for them. And for me, reclamation work is spiritual work. It, it has everything to do with reconnecting with a lost part of myself 
and not necessarily fitting into a trendy thing, right? I think a lot of people think that, um, you know, it's uh, trendy right now to reclaim indigenous roots. And I don't think that that is a bad thing. Um, I think a lot of people have been very, very divorced from their indigeneity and their indigenous um, ancestry and very close ancestry, not, you know, 500 years ago ancestry, like, you know, just even just one or two generations ago. Um, and so I think that is a beautiful thing to, to reclaim something that has been lost. But what I think, um, you know, going into it, attempting to capitalize or attempting to teach it to other people, what that does is it continues to whitewash the practice. It continues to appropriate the practice, even if it is practices from your own ancestry. Appropriation is not unique to whiteness and it's not unique to the West. Um, and, you know, I have clients that are Irish, you know, they have Irish roots or Scottish roots and they want to reclaim. And I always tell them, don't go into reclamation with this Western imperialist mentality that, you know, Americans tend to have, um, where, you know, you want to just go in and, and take as much as you can, absorb as, as much as you can, as quickly as you can, so that then you can turn around and resell it or repackage it. Um, because you're going to run into issues, right? And you're going to end up doing the same thing you've done to other people's cultures, you're going to end up doing to your own culture. So it takes a lot of patience. It takes a lot of self-reflection. You have to put your ego aside because you're relearning something, right? There are a lot of people that have had the privilege of keeping certain practices intact and you have to go into it with a lot of respect. Um, and you can't go into it with a Western mentality, um, especially when it comes to Caribbean practices, African practices for black folks. Um, these are practices that don't look anything like the wellness practices that are currently out there right now. And so <clears throat> you might come into it thinking, oh, that's odd, or that's weird, or I don't want to do that, uh, without having the full context or knowledge of what these practices are meant to be doing, right? Um, and so you have to go into it with a lot of care and a lot of respect and a really open mind. And if you don't do that, um, you know, you're going to have a really hard time and you're going to end up moving on to different practices that seem a little bit easier entry, seem a lot more commodified. There are a lot that there's a lot more access to them, but they're not necessarily fulfilling. Um, so, you know, going into it with the right intention, going into it with an open mind and a lot of self-reflection is key. So I'd be curious if you have maybe like a short list of um, the Western mentality, like maybe we're going in and we're like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm making sure I'm going to be intentional. I'm not doing my Western mentality. And I'm sure there's going to, it's going to pop up because a lot of us were raised in this. So I'd be curious to hear what you have to say on that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is the bulk of my work now. Um, I started off in anti-racism, diversity, and equity. And I have been doing a lot of study the past three years around colonization and decolonization. And what, I, what I'm about to say isn't necessarily decolonial, but it is almost like a deprogramming of sorts. Because when you live in a colonial society, meaning any society that has colonized other cultures or other people or other people's land, um, it's kind of like the water you're swimming in, you know, very similar to racism. It's the air you're breathing. And so it's, it's, it can seem very normal. Xenophobia feels very normal. And uh, it's not until it's pointed out to you that you're like, oh, wait, 
yeah, maybe I can see where that's wrong or that's problematic or that's racist. And so with imperialism, it's the same. Western imperialism in particular is a branch of European colonization, but because, uh, you know, America, I would even go so far as to say Canada, even like just the Northern um, North America has been so pervasive and so centered uh, across the world globally. I would say that um, it's very easy to just see, you know, American culture or the American way of doing things or Western way of doing things as just very normal, right? Capitalism, so normal. (laughs) Um, You know, just speaking English, so normal, right? People don't understand that these are colonial things, right? Capitalism is a colonial concept. Um, you know, speaking English and demanding that other people speak English, very colonial concept. And so one of the things that you want to, you know, first do when you're trying to distance or disrupt um, or dismantle something is you first have to get down to the fact that there are things that have been normalized that you now need to unpack. Mm -hmm. And for some people, that's race right? They have to unpack what whiteness means to them. Um, For some people, um, you know, that's capitalism. How do I contribute to this capitalist structure? How have I been complicit in, in, you know, exploiting other people? Mm -hmm. Um, And and I would say for anybody who is um, American or North American, you really have to start to see how all of the ways in which this imperial society has um, enacted such a, you know, highly centered, you know, (laughs) uh, society, right? Like, you know, Hollywood is very Western centered. Um, The way banks operate is very Western centered. Um, The way in which even travel, you know, somebody reached out to me recently and said, you know, I would like to decolonize travel. And I'm like, I don't know that I can do that for you because it's so complex. It's so nuanced. There's so many intricacies with it. So to kind of answer your question, I think it requires, again, you know, similar to reclamation work, it requires you to set aside your ego and realize that, you know, the West has really um, seeped itself into so many different things. And so in order to dismantle colonization, you really have to start from the root of things, from the history. The reason we study history um, is not necessarily so that we can be a know-it-all, right? Like we, I know what happened back then. It's, it's to study what happened back then and relate it to now so that you can put the puzzle piece together. And so what happened in the past hasn't necessarily um, gone away. It's just evolved and changed, you know, here and there. And so even though the United States isn't currently attempting to conquer other lands, it is still currently a colony, meaning that, you know, the United States hasn't been given back to all of the tribes it belongs to, right? Mm -hmm. It still is um, a colony. It is still a, um, you know, territory that was stolen from people. And there are five other colonies and territories of the United States, Puerto Rico being one of them, Guam being another. I would go so far as saying Hawaii was definitely one of them, even though it's currently a state and not a territory. Um, 
And when you get to know that history, then you can start putting the puzzle pieces together of seeing, well, how does that, you know, currently affect people today? How does it affect my life? How have I been complicit in the system? And then you get to start to look into other things like the way people do business, like the, like the language that you, uh, you're speaking of, how we force other cultures to assimilate into our culture um, or American culture, if you will. And then how does that reflect in your spiritual practices? Because I guarantee you it does. And, you know, how many spiritual practices are you practicing right now? I think a lot of people don't realize that they are mixing a lot of different traditions and calling it wellness or calling it witchcraft. And they don't realize that these are elements from other people's cultures that have been kind of blended together into like this one, you know, thing, one bubble. Um, and it's all out of context. And you kind of have to go back and see, okay, how does this, where does this come from? And then how did that culture specifically practice it in its full context? Not the whitewashed version, not the misinformed version, not the, um, you know, super simplified version. How is it actually meant to be practiced? And is that authentic to me? And I would say that that is one of the deepest questions that you can ask about your spiritual practices, especially if they don't come from your culture, is, is it authentic to me? And if it isn't, then that's something I need to explore. Because if I'm practicing something that is oversimplified or perhaps whitewashed or appropriated, and I want to practice it in its truest sense, but that truest sense isn't authentic to me, I need to move on. And a lot of people, that's very hard to do. And, you know, I would say that was very hard for me to do, right? I don't currently practice yoga in, in the way that I was practicing it 11 years ago. And although it was very helpful to me for the last 11 years or 10 years before I stopped um, practicing it, um, you know, that will never go away. But at a certain point, I had to decide, is this really authentic to me and where I want to continue my spiritual practice? And I decided, no, my own spiritual practices, my own ancestral spiritual practices are what feels authentic to me. It feels more familiar. It feels like a missing piece of my puzzle. And that's the direction I want to move in. And so that's where I'm going, you know, with my spiritual practices now. Um, but it's not an easy path to get to. And so I would say people just, again, a lot of patience, a lot of self, self-empathy and compassion. Um, you know, I think a lot of guilt tends to come up for people when they, you know, start looking into appropriated practices specifically, and that uh, guilt and, you know, uh, you know, just feelings that come up with that um, can do one of two things. It can make you move in the, in, in the direction that feels more authentic to you, or you can double down <laughs> and you can keep going full force. And I've seen both. And both are a choice. You can choose to do one or the other. Um, and that is only a choice that you can make. So, you know, it, it's a lot of work. It's not easy. Yeah, I love that you brought up because my next question was going to be like, well, how do you know? And you're like, if it feels authentic. I love that as a baseline question. I think I kind of, when I, I started in the new age spiritual community, learning from like white women and things like that. And at a certain point, I, I started hearing my intuition was like, mm, you know, like that kind of thing. And I think that was kind of like, this doesn't feel authentic to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, I had to do a lot of like unlearning around these things that I was like, oh, okay, everyone does this. So I'm going to keep doing it. 
Um, and I was going to ask your opinion on like for the, the ladder that you said, where it's like people kind of double down. Cause I, I've seen different schools of thought. Um, there's some people that kind of are okay with just taking pieces of what works for them and they feel like they're making their own because everything is so fragmented. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was going to ask like your opinion on that or like, how do we navigate that? Cause I feel like maybe people who are listening, they're practitioners, they're POC people who are trying to reclaim and they might see tons of people who are like, well, I spoke to my spirit guides and they said, it's okay if I do voodoo or, you know, like something like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, like I said, it's complex. It's nuanced. I can't give a straight answer because there isn't one. But what I can say is just working with people in general and seeing the commonalities that people have. I think the people that end up doubling down, again, it's a trauma response. It's a response to their feelings and not being able to handle the emotions and the overwhelm that tends to come with having information that completely contradicts what you have been taught. And most Americans, most Europeans, I would even say, have been taught to um, that taking from others is okay, that it's normal, and that it's a good thing because it's helping other cultures. When you when you use their stuff, when you take their stuff, it actually helps them. And you know, there's a lot of talk in the wellness space, and I definitely was a part of this, so I don't divorce myself from it around uh, cultural appreciation Mm. that you can that what you're doing is not appropriating it's appreciating somebody else's culture right but there's so much nuance even to that and I would say that's an oversimplification of a very complex issue that most people don't know how to solve because they don't they aren't aware of how colonization has actually you know gone from just a government taking somebody else's land to a to you know the mindset of people um, because colonization is a mindset and so if you're going into a practice thinking you know I'm just appreciating this culture there's nothing wrong with what I'm doing I would say it's going to be very hard for you to um, move from that mindset into a mindset of reclamation because you're just going to bring that same colonial mindset into, you know, your own ancestral practices that perhaps are being gatekept for, again, very good reasons. Um, and you're going to end up repeating the same thing, you know, cloaked in, in, in a different outfit. And so um, I think what collectively needs to happen is a deeper understanding of how um, how colonial structures actually operate. It's a big reason why I created the Anti-Oppression Academy inside of my Anti-Oppression Social Club, because what I realized was people want to talk about these things, but they aren't sure of where to start learning so that they can actively apply it. And in the wellness space, it has just become this uh, contest of who can decolonize better. (laughs) And for me, that's not a space I want to be in. For me, decolonization is deeply personal. It's, um, it needs to be you know, done in a very respectful way, and it needs to be done in an anti-capitalist way. And I don't think that you can do that when you're commodifying wellness. 
And so a lot of people are, you know, putting together decolonization uh, wellness um, workshops and, and courses and books and stuff like that. I don't think that's a bad thing. And I don't think that everybody's wrong. But I do think that if we're going to uh, get into that realm, we first have to unpack all of the ways in which these wellness practices have been colonized and that colonial um, structure continues to be perpetuated. And people aren't ready for that yet. They're, They're definitely not ready for that yet. And I think that it's very difficult to, uh, to fully unpack how even certain practices from certain cultures have been colonized prior to European colonization. Mm-hmm. You know, um, religion is something that, um, you know, is kind of melted into certain cultures' wellness practices. And if you're not aware of that culture's religious practices and, and how you know, their their religion has kind of been used to exploit other people, how it has been used to push certain uh, race, racism, um, colorism, casteism, then it's going to be very hard for you to unpack it, right? And it's going to be very hard, incredibly difficult, almost impossible for you to decolonize as a person who doesn't belong to that identity or that culture. And so I don't know that people are ready for that yet. I haven't personally seen it. I think the people who are ready for it are the people who are willing, much more willing to reclaim their own practices and their own culture and really start to unpack the intricacies and the nuances in that. Um, And we have to understand that human beings have been around for a really long time, (laughs) for thousands of years. And so that's thousands of years of history and thousands of years of wellness practices evolving and changing with the seasons, with climate change, with um, migration, you know, routes and practices, or not practices, but migration um, patterns. And, um, you know, we are currently living in, in a world where there's a lot of refugees by way of war, by, where, by way of climate change. Um, and that is going to evolve wellness practices in a multitude of ways. And so I think, I think that a culture can be appreciated and there can be cultural exchange, which is the proper uh, term, mm-hmm. when one culture teaches another culture and they properly exchange with respect and with um, credit. But that's not the world we're living in currently. Right now, um, there are a lot of people who are Uh, weaponizing wellness practices, they're weaponizing identity, they are weaponizing even decolonial structures. Um, And uh, that's not something that I sign up for. What I do sign up for is people being willing to step outside of all of that Mm -hmm. and say, okay, again, what is going to be authentic to me? And if taking, if, if you truly feel that taking one element of this uh, culture's practice and another element of this culture's practice and another element of this culture's practice outside of context is authentic to you, nothing I say will convince you otherwise, right? And so that's the complexity of the human being is that you have a choice and that choice is often, um, you know, instigated by your environment, by your previous beliefs and by the ways in which you currently operate. And so if you're not willing to dismantle all of that, then you're just gonna keep doing what you're doing. You're gonna double down. 
And what I'm interested in are the people who are willing, much more willing to, um, you know, have that beginner's mind again of, okay, let me go back and let me do the work that is required that takes years, not a couple weeks. <laughs> you know, it's not a certification that you're going to get. It's not that colonial structure of, you know, I'm going to put in, you know, a couple hundred hours and I'm going to be able to teach this later. Um, it's not a one to two to even five workshops practice. This takes a long, long time. You're going to have multiple teachers, not just one. You're going to have a multitude of books to read. You're going to have, and, and one thing that people don't realize is this requires community. You, you typically in indigenous cultures, and this is what I've learned through reclamation work, is that you don't self-proclaim that you are a healer. You don't self-proclaim that you're a yoga teacher or a guru. You don't self-proclaim that you're, you know, um, even a wellness practitioner. What you do is you are learning in community, and it's the community who then says, you, I have been, you know, healed by your words. I have been healed by the, the advice that you have given me. You're a healer. Keep doing that. <laughs> It's the community that sets that label for you, right? It's the community that says who the guru is in that community. It's the, it's the community who says who the leader is. This is the person that we have appointed to continue, you know, getting us organized and, and keeping the spiritual practice together. And so, you know, any, any uh, Black person, for instance, who is uh, attempting to reclaim um, African, you know, spiritual practices based on their ancestral lineage or based on what feels more authentic to them. That's what you're going to find. You're going to find that you can't just take a class and get certified and now you can go out and teach this. You have to be steeped into the community and the community embraces you. And then there's initiation processes. And then you, you know, once you've had that initiation, you get another mentor who then starts mentoring you in this other thing. And then you have another initiation and now you've graduated a little bit deeper into the practice. And again, this takes years and it's very similar to Caribbean culture. Um, Taino uh, practices are something that are gatekept right now uh, for very good reason, because our, our ancestors were almost decimated through colonization, um, particularly Spanish colonization and now, Amer uh, you know, U.S. colonization. And so um, you have to be a part of that community. You can't just say you're Taino. You have to be a part of the tribe. You have to be adopted into the tribe. And then you start to learn all of these practices. And some people will share freely. Um, you know, certain cultures and tribes will sh share freely some aspects of practices, practices that don't necessarily require context. Um, like herbs, right? You, utilizing herbs to help to heal your insomnia, for instance, or sleep deprivation, or, you know, gut health, right? These are things that it, nature gives freely, and so the culture will give it freely back. But with other things, you do have to be initiated. There is a multi-year process. Um, you have to get to know the people within that community. And then once you're adopted in, then you can say, yes, this is what I am. I'm Taino, I'm this, I'm that. 
um, you know, you mentioned voodoo. Voodoo is something that um, I was studying by way of ancestral lineage. And I, what I realized was it is such a deep practice and it is a beautiful practice. Um, you know, when, when you learn the non-American view of voodoo, it is so much more than this demonized practice that it has been made out to be and like this dark magic or whatever. It is nothing like that. It is so beautiful. Um, and it didn't feel like something that I could proclaim because of my ancestral history, because I am so mixed with Spanish ancestry and European ancestry who perpetuated the demonization of that practice. And I didn't feel comfortable continuing down that path, knowing that there are still certain parts of myself that I need to make sure that I don't perpetuate myself based on my ancestral history. And that's something that a lot of people are going to have to go through. Um, and, and it's hard. It's really hard. And it takes a lot of self-reflection. And um, you have to be willing to do that. You can't just go into a culture, even if it's ancestrally part of your lineage, and think that you can just absorb it and it's yours, right? You're not entitled to anything in this life. And that is another colonial structure that unfortunately we have been, um, you know, swimming in is people feel really entitled to everything, to do anything, be anything, um, you know, and take anything. And that's just not something that you can do and reclamation work, you have to throw that out the window because it's the community who decides what you can and can't have. Um, and, you know, that's just not what we've been taught. Yeah, it's so funny. I <clears throat> I was talking with my cousin literally about that part of our conversation this weekend and how like a lot of the coaching industry tries to do the colonial, like you can learn all this stuff that I learned in 10 years in two months. And like, that it becomes very unregulated and that a lot of native or indigenous cultures or just ancient cultures there it was a whole long process even though there was no certification no school that you could go to you had to learn under a specific person you had to train and do all these things and yeah it's similar like I always use the analogy like because I'm queer so it's like you can't say that you're an ally just because you did one nice thing for a gay person like exactly. they that community has to say you have supported us you're an ally right. and it's very much so that like claiming that you're a healer and things like that I don't like I went through a whole thing where I was like I don't even want to say that I'm a healer because I'm just helping people heal themselves like I'm not I'm not the magic person you know so yeah, yeah I love that you were um bringing up there's so many like good pieces and points and takeaways in that um that are, I think will help people kind of understand how deep the colonial like mindset goes to, to feel, yeah, the entitlement, like, oh, well, I know that my ancestors like 10 generations ago were, so I'm like, give it to me. It's mine, you know? Um, and yeah. And that's a very Western mentality. Like I said, you know, um, there's a, there's a person that I've been helping for a couple of years now and, um, they are, if I remember correctly, they are attempting to reclaim um, their Irish ancestry and practices. And, um, you know, they've said it's, it's been difficult because when I go into it with my Western mentality, I have a hard time because I feel like 
I'm entitled to this. This is mine. You know, my DNA results say, say <laughs> so, right? Um, and I want to do it really quickly, right? I want to do it in a weekend. I want to do it in three months. And that's, there's just so much history. I mean, it's all spiritual practices, mm-hmm. indigenous spiritual practices, you know, ancestral spiritual practices. It has been generations and generations and generations passed down. There's so much to absorb. Mm-hmm. And you can't do that in a weekend. You can't do it in three months. It takes years and it takes absorbing it from a multitude of people because no one person is going to have all of the answers. And unfortunately, we live in a culture where it's very cult-like, right? One person has the answers for you. And as long as you follow that one person, you're going to absorb everything you need to know mm-hmm. and everything is going to come to you. And then once you've done your, your, your work with them, then you can go out and teach other people and start your own cult. <laughs> and now you're the leader of that one, you know, tiny little cult. And um, it's just, it's, it's a very unhealthy part of our society. Mm-hmm. It's a very unhealthy part of, of Western culture that I think, um, you know, really needs to be examined and looked at. I think the obsession uh, and the appropriation of the guru concept um, mm-hmm. has been totally divorced from what it really was and used to be. Um, it also can be easily exploited, as we've seen, even from people of that, that particular culture. It can be exploited, and it is constantly. Um, and so, you know, you just have to be very careful. Um, one thing that I want to say too, that I've learned stepping outside of the wellness industry, I still have my wellness practices, but stepping outside of the wellness industry as a whole, what I've really realized is that there are certain aspects of this wellness obsession that has made people really unwell (laughs) and it almost feels like an oxymoron right because it's it's the wellness industry like we're supposed to be doing practices that are really healthy for us but as I said in the beginning I replaced alcohol with another obsession which was my yoga practice which was meant to be healthy but it it turned toxic and unhealthy for me in so many ways because I was obsessed with it and my obsession was the unhealthy part And so if you're going into wellness and you're doing crystal healing and you're doing yoga and you're doing meditation and you're doing, I don't know, Arabic practices and you're doing Zen and you're doing all of this mixture of stuff, is that really healthy for you? Is it, or are you just disassociating from certain issues? And I think a lot of people that go into wellness, and I say this from my own personal experience, are also going into wellness because they're traumatized by the medical system and pharmaceuticals. And they're attempting to do something that feels more natural and feels more holistic. And I think that in itself is a good intention. Mm -hmm. But if you're so entrenched and now in this um, overly puristic, holistic uh, mentality, that has turned toxic. And we've seen it with the anti-vaxxers. We saw, and a lot of research was done during the pandemic, of people inside of the wellness industry, yoga practitioners, meditation practitioners, um, who ended up being anti-vaxxers and either died from COVID or had lost friends or, you know, lost jobs because they refused to get the vaccine and so they couldn't work anymore. And all of these things, you know, it, it turned very political. 
And if, and that can be very toxic, right? Because not only is it toxic to the person, but it's toxic to society. You're getting other people sick because of your personal beliefs. And that is not a part of a wellness mindset, right? A wellness mindset doesn't just consider the individual. It also considers the environment that they're in and the other people that are surrounding them. And if you're that unwilling to step outside of your individualistic mentality, I'm sorry to tell you, you're in a colonial structure <laughs> because the, the a colonial, um, you know, a colonized mindset will only think of the individual, will only think of the benefit of the individual and not the benefit of the society. And that's not wellness. That's not holistic. That's something totally different. And so people really have to grapple with that. Like, what does that mean? What does wellness actually mean for you? Is it this purity culture that you want to subscribe to? Is it to appear to be better than other people? Is it a trauma response from the pharmaceutical and the medical system? Because um, that's valid, but you don't want to replace one thing, one extreme with another extreme, you know, similar to what I did with alcohol and, and wellness. I was, re I was going from one extreme mentality to a totally different extreme mentality and calling it wellness, but it really didn't feel that way. I was still very sick. And so, you know, with reclamation work and, you know, um, with wellness work and, you know, even just with decolonial work, you, you can't go into it with the same mentality that created it. You just can't, it's not gonna work. You have to completely dismantle all of these old notions that you've grown up with, that you see in Hollywood, that you're, you know, being fed by goop. <laughs> you can't go into it with that mentality because you're just going to com completely perpetuate the same thing over and over again. And, um, and, and it's not good for anybody. It's not good for the individual and it's not good for society. Yeah. So there's a few metaphors that I use and that were popping up. Like the idea of like holistic, everything needs to be holistic. Everything needs to be in community, thinking about more than yourself. And um, like what came up was when we're in school and we learn like the the ecosystem of nature and like the food web and how like everything is connected and if you take one away it destroys the whole yeah. ecosystem but you might not see that from your perspective yes so it's like very much so in that kind of mentality that everything is with everything all the time we should be thinking about everything all the time and if we if we lose sight of that, that's okay because we're in the colonial like system, but then to re realign, Oh, wait a minute. I was like going off the track for a little bit. Let me come back over here. Um, yeah. yeah that's and that's a constant and that's why it takes years <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because we're in an environment that doesn't foster wellness. It fosters productivity. It fosters mm -hmm. capitalism. It fosters exploitation. Um, it fosters profits over people mm -hmm. so you constantly have to go around and around and around as long as you're continuing to advance a little bit each time that's okay learning from your mistakes is totally fine it's it's okay to sometimes you know devolve into back into that mindset but that's why it takes so long. It takes years. And that's why you have to be steeped in community so that the community can remind you, hey, mm -hmm. we're not doing that. We're doing this. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and the community can also foster certain skill sets, right? And that's with every indigenous spiritual practice. 
certain people had certain skill sets, certain people are really good with storytelling. And so you're able to like, you know, talk things out with people. Certain people are really good with nonverbal communication and, you know, doing things with plants and, you know, finding structure and finding systems and finding um, patterns, right? Some people are really good at that. So they're able to like, just go knee deep into that. That in, in a really holistic spiritual practice, you're learning from a multitude of people who have different skill sets to get you to a point where you feel like, yes, this feels well-rounded. This feels really good. Um, and like you said, when one piece is sick or missing or broken, the whole thing is going to kind of go out of whack and you're going to find yourself again, running, running around in circles. Um, and nothing is perfect. No spiritual practice is perfect. One of the things that I had to really absorb from an old mentor was that, you know, I was afraid that moving from a yoga practice and, and having those certain types of beliefs and moving into my more ancestral practices, um, somehow I was going to be missing out something because I still had this colonized mindset that my own culture um, was somehow, you know, those spiritual practices were somehow wrong. And that's something that I absorbed through, you know, assimilation, right? My own, my own culture, there's something so wrong with it that I had to leave it, right? Mm -hmm. I had to leave it to find something better. Most immigrants have that story. Like we're leaving one bad situation to go to a better situation. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you can absorb that as, well, there's something wrong with my culture. There's something wrong with those practices. And there's something bad in there inherently. And that's kind of how I was approaching it, right? And a mentor of mine said, you can't go into it with that mindset. Not only is that disrespectful to your culture, it's disrespectful to the ancestors who are passing, who were passing down all of those spiritual practices up until you, and you're thinking some, something in there is bad. Having critical thinking is not a bad thing. I actually, like, that's what I want to do in my work. I want people to have critical thinking skills so that they're not just accepting things as they are but they're really questioning it and questioning things isn't bad but when you're questioning it seeking something bad that is where I think mm. you know colonization has really done its its number because for so many of us whiteness is the standard whiteness is the thing that we're supposed to ascribe to and everything that's surrounding whiteness right like those that type of culture, those type of spiritual practices, uh, that type of beauty, you know, et cetera. And anybody who doesn't fit into that, people of color, marginalized people, people who have been othered, um, there's something inherently wrong somewhere in that, right? That's what colonization teaches us. And all of that is part of, you know, the divide and conquer colonial mentality, of we're going to divide and we're going to conquer everything. So these people, you know, we're, we're going to attempt to, um, in our conquering, we're going to attempt to make sure that these people aren't united together. And because they're not united together, it's a lot easier to like, you know, get your hands in there and, and take what you can, right? And with spiritual practice, you, you can't go into it with that, with that type of intention of, I'm, I'm being critical because I'm trying to find something bad. Mm. That can set your spiritual practice back in any 
case, no matter what culture it is that you belong to. Um, and not only that, it's going to um, continue that divide and conquer tactic so much so that the, the culture itself starts to degrade. And, um, you know, again, the reason, a lot of the, the reasons why certain cultures will gatekeep their spiritual practices is because they're trying to avoid the divide and conquer. They want to make sure that no, no outsider is coming in with that intention of conquering that or dividing you know, what is already intact. Um, and, and that has to be respected. And so you have to do your, your due diligence and make sure that you, um, you are a critical thinker, but you're not being critical of the culture itself. You're being, you're, you're more curious than judgmental. Yeah. And when you say that, it just reminds me of like, especially if you grew up here in America in the school system, like we're taught that right to just like accept to listen to authority believe what you're taught in the book and the critical thinking I remember like I got like tested for like the gifted program it's like only if you show that you can critical think then you can like go to the it was like just very weird and then I'm I've been relearning my Judaism and my culture in that way and we have this whole belief that like you should question everything um and the reason why you get bar bat mitzvah at 12 and 13 is that's the age when you're we believe that you can start critically thinking about the world and so you're an adult then um so I love that you brought that up like critical thinking and like questioning that's a big thing I've been doing just like questioning everything like why do I do this belief why do I do this practice like who taught this to me and in my healing I help people with trauma healing that's a big thing we do too, right? Like, where does this voice in my head come from? Who is that? Who to- is it for me? Did it come from me or, or elsewhere? So I'm just seeing like how much everything is all the same, how yeah. we're saying like, it's all holistic, it's all community. And like the stuff that I do on the micro scale with people in their internal world is the same as what we're doing, what you're doing with like the anti-racism and decolonization and reclamation. It's the same um, kind of framework, I guess, or structure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Very similar. And it's very difficult. It's very yeah. difficult for most people because, you know, we've been taught to do the exact opposite. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to disrupt. We don't want to dismantle anything. We don't want to divest, right? We're, we feel comfortable in this, you know, muddy waters. Um, and we don't realize that like clarity can happen and, you know, holistic wellness can happen if we just get rid of the mud, right? Like we, you know, or set the the mud aside or have the mud be useful for us rather than toxic for us. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's really difficult. And so that's why, you know, I felt like I had to leave the industry, Mm -hmm. the wellness industry in order for me to be well personally, because it just felt like there was a lot of commodifying, a lot of marketing even with things like decolonization, it felt like people were marketing decolonization as a cure-all, you know, mm-hmm. and if you learn from this one decolonized, decolonial person or whatever, you know, the terminology is, um, you're, you're going to have all the answers and it just doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. And especially if they're continuing to perpetuate capitalism, mm-hmm. they're continuing to perpetuate structures that are colonial, like yoga teacher trainings, in my personal opinion, that is a colonial structure. Mm-hmm. That never used to happen, you know, even a hundred years ago. Yeah. Um, and now all of a sudden they're a thing and that's the standard. 
there's something odd with that, right? It doesn't, it doesn't quite fit. And so if, you know, if somebody, you know, is telling you like, yes, you can be a yoga teacher and you can be a decolonized yoga teacher as long as you take this 200 hour training and you're good to go, that to me still feels odd. Um, and so I just, I don't want to subscribe to that. What I want to do is help people be curious, um, is help people dismantle in their own ways. It's help people get much closer to what an authentic practice might look like um, for them. And, and reclamation work is a beautiful thing. And, and, and a lot of cultures need it because they have been so colonized. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and reclamation work is so hard to do. Um, I, I want to make that process, at least the, 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 the process, the mental process of it, I want to help that be easier for people. I can't make reclamation practice easy. But what I can do is help you process the feelings that come out of that. That's mm -hmm. much more interesting to me and a much more decolonized way of doing it than saying, you know, <clears throat> I don't know, whatever it is that people are saying out there. That <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's much more interesting to me to help the person um, get out of, you know, this wheel of colonization, no matter what their identity is. And, and stop perpetuating all of the fuckery because I, I, it's just yeah. not helpful. Yeah. yeah. So I know we talked about, like, if you do want to start reclaiming your ancestry or your spiritual practice, the kind of mindset that you need to go into it. I'd be curious if you have maybe like spaces or recommendations where people could start um because I know like we mentioned it's like overwhelming it's a lot it's there's especially if you're a product of colonization like your ancestral line it's like you have all these different cultures to think about mm -hmm. um so I'd be curious if you have like some because I've heard some people that are like maybe do family tree work maybe do this you know mm -hmm. so like I don't know if you have some maybe um like physical practices that they can start to unpack whatever comes up as they do them for sure. Yeah. I, you know, again, it's tricky. It's nuanced. It really depends on the person. And I think um, you're right. So many people are multicultural and they don't even know it. Um, <clears throat> you know, our society thinks, you know, if, if you are white presenting, right, like you live in a white body, then you're just a white person, right? But there's so many other cultures that are built up into that. Um, and, you know, especially for brown folks, that's definitely the story is we're, we're so mixed with so many things dependent on how colonization was uh, put into that, but also migration. Um, and so, yeah, it's complex. I think genealogy is always a good idea for anybody, whether it's for uh, deepening your spiritual practice or reclamation work or just, you know, to get to know your history, your own history. I don't think many of us are gifted um, with that passed down, you know, from either our maternal line or our paternal line. Um, and so, yeah, I think genealogy is always a good idea. Uh, I would be careful with the DNA stuff because it's not a perfect science. It evolves and changes all the time. And it's not necessarily a stamp on a passport, if that makes sense. Like, I think a lot of people are like, oh, I'm 10% this and 30% that and 60% whatever. And that's who I am. Hmm. That's not the case either. That's who your family <laughs> was. And that's, you know, the, the, the thread and the puzzle piece. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you get to claim that. 
right? Just because I personally am 10 to 15% African doesn't mean that I now get to proclaim that I am African, right? Like that, that would be disrespectful. And so, you know, just be careful with the DNA stuff, but genealogy, family tree building, try to go back as far as you can. That's a beautiful thing and do it with family. Because so that's even more beautiful, right? Because there's so many stories that people are going to tell in that process. And, oh, I remember this person and I remember their background and their story. Um, that's beautiful. That's not always accessible to people. So I just want to, yeah. you know, make sure that, you know, some, sometimes that is a privilege. Um, and so, you know, just, again, doing the best that you can. Um, and, you know, Another thing that I would say is as you're going through this process, um, you know, there are a lot of complexities for people, for, for certain people, for instance, if you're adopted, and that's not a privilege that has been given to you of, you know, understanding your background or your ancestry. In those certain instances, I think DNA can be helpful, but sometimes it can also be very confusing. And so, you know, just doing the best you can, seeking out therapy, seeking out community, seeking out other adoptees who are going through a similar thing and a similar process is really, really helpful. Um, and, and in those instances, I think, you know, again, continuing to ask yourself, does this feel authentic? Does this feel authentic to me? And just following your gut in a lot of instances and following your gut, not in a fear-based way or not, not following your gut in the colonial sense of the way, but, you know, just noticing, how do I feel about this? How do I feel learning about this? Do I feel like this would be authentic to me? And that's a great way to, you know, kind of go about things. Um, I can't say that I have, like, a specific route for people to go, because, <laughs> again, I'm also yeah. learning. That's one of the, you know, great things about decolonization is you learn that you're not an expert <laughs> in anything, um, you can be helpful in a lot of ways, but you're not an expert. Mm -hmm. And so even as I learn, I've, you know, kind of picked up wisdom from a multitude of different people and am currently being mentored by people. And, you know, the way that I've gotten here from, you know, many years ago, um, that's, that's been a winding road. But what I can say is, you know, again, bring in those critical thinking skills. Does this person make sense in what they're saying? Is there any sense of hypocrisy in what they're saying? Maybe I need to go in a different direction. Um, any, any time that somebody is really deeply cemented in their beliefs, I think question that because, you know, nothing is certain. Even spiritual practices evolve and change over time. And they have to because seasons change. Environments change. Mm -hmm. um, our culture changes, right? We don't want our spiritual practices to be the same as they were 500 years ago because patriarchy right like <laughs> we don't want that we want something that feels much more holistic much more progressive and our spiritual practices should reflect that so anybody who's like deeply cemented in like old old beliefs i would say you know learn what what you can but um that can also be a cult of its own right like this again it's purity culture it's like you know we have to do things this certain way and it has to stay this way forever and that's just not realistic for you know society um so yeah i mean i i listen to a lot of podcasts i read a lot of books um and i just continue moving down my journey and that's how i would suggest anybody do it yeah yeah I'm, i always remind myself like in school we did 
um, you know, like research papers and things like that. And they always tell you like, you have to use a minimum of five sources and stuff like that. So I'm always thinking that way. Like whenever I'm looking up stuff, number one, who is writing it? Because if you Google like indigenous practices and then the I don't even know. I, Google SEO. It's always a white person that's like right. to, doing an article about indigenous. Pra- like I look who is the person and I do a minimum of like three to five and then I see what's overlapping. So I think that that's kind of what you're pointing out is like learning from different people, keep changing, like keep educating, keep shifting. And yeah, I think that I don't know. I just, that metaphor kept popping up and I just wanted to mention it, but yeah. Definitely. (laughs) And, you know, as a new journalist, that's definitely what I do too, is I don't, I can't just listen to one person's perspective or one person's experience. I have to quantify that with a multitude of others. Um, And, you know, if everybody comes back with different opinions, then, you know, that's something, Mm -hmm. but, you know, perhaps one person has one opinion and then three other people have a similar opinion. And so that's when you can really start to make choices, right? You can really start to see, okay, well, these people all agree (laughs) and they have evidence and they have studies and they have all of these things that corroborate what they're saying. And this person has a totally different opinion, but maybe they don't have as many studies. Maybe they don't even have lived experience, right? And so that is a much uh, better way of making a decision versus if you were just like okay this person said I should do go to this person so I go to that person and then that person said I should you know it's like you're gonna go down a road that may not necessarily be good for you and that's the same with spiritual practice you have to be guided right but that guidance doesn't necessarily have to be um, by way of other people that guidance can be through your own due diligence right like through your own research and really absorbing what people are saying. And again, questioning without judgment and stepping outside of that colonial mindset that says, well, this person's an expert, so I have to follow them. That's not the case with spiritual practice. No one's an expert, but there are people who have a lot of experience and who have a lot of wisdom and they can help guide you and advise you and stuff like that. But you have to be able to find those people. Um, And, you know, like I said, you know, I think that there is a lot of beauty in very, very traditional practices that haven't really changed over time. There is a lot of beauty in that, but there's also a lack of progression. And, you know, like I said earlier, patriarchy was a thing back in the day, right? Like, and, and has been for a long time and continues to be. And so we want spiritual practices to reflect progression and not digress. Um, and, you know, similar things with, you know, we're having a lot of trans rights issues right now. Mm-hmm. And spiritual practices are not devoid from that. There are a lot of indigenous practices that have always embraced trans and queerness. And that's a beautiful thing. And a lot of people don't know that because, again, colonization has demonized it. And so a lot of African cultures and spiritual practices have always embraced um, transness and queerness. And most people don't know that. Um, and there are a lot of um, Native American, Native South American um, cultures and practices that have embraced it. Most people don't know that. And you wouldn't know that unless you started doing reclamation work. But if you happen to find that certain traditions and certain spiritual practices aren't embracing of that, it doesn't mean that that practice is wrong 
it means that it needs to progress. Mm. And so there's that to also, you know, kind of get into the mud with. So again, you know, we're dealing with humans, right? It's nuanced and complex. And so, you know, we just have to do the best that we can. But yeah, I think, you know, um, finding the route, the right route for you is going to be evolving and changing all the time. And you have to be really compassionate with yourself. You have to be compassionate with other people too. You know, there's been a lot of mentors that have been good for a season. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I felt like I need to move on or something that, you know, a belief they're really holding on to just doesn't feel right. Mm -hmm. I need to go in a different direction. Um, and it doesn't mean that they are bad. It just means that it's not right for me. And that's kind of how spiritual practices are. Sometimes they're right for a season. Other times you just need to move on. Other times it's perfect, right? Like you, there are practitioners who have been practicing their same spiritual practice forever. And that's a beautiful thing too. And so you just, you know, you, ha you have to find what's, what's right for you. But again, not through the colonial lens. Yeah. Because a lot of people, like you said, they double down and they, they think, oh, dabbling in multiple different cultures, that's right for me. Is it though? <laughs> <laughs> or are you trying to convince yourself of that because it's easier mm -hmm. to take from other people rather than to really research and take your time and question certain things and really find the history, the, the often uncomfortable history a lot of the times it's just easier to just be ignorant about that. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that's, I, I would argue that that's not wellness and that's not healing. I would say the healing really comes in the muck mm -hmm. in the uncomfortable, right? Like, you know, for me, and I can only speak for, for experience, for me, that uncomfortableness is my Spanish ancestry. How do I reconcile my current lived experience with the knowledge that my own lineage, my own ancestry comes from colonizers, <laughs> people who have actively demonized certain practices that feel really authentic to me. How do I reconcile that? That's uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, it's very uncomfortable, but a lot of my healing has come through going through that has come through being willing to unpack that and not make excuses, not, you know, say, oh, well, that was back then. This is now, <laughs> you know, like that doesn't affect me. I'm not part of the problem. Um, that's not helpful. Yeah. The healing comes in. Okay. That happened. It's part of my living, breathing self. So now how do I move through that? And how do I make sure that I don't perpetuate the same bullshit that they did back then? Yeah. And then how do I make sure that I'm not feeling entitled to practices that they did try to demonize mm. because of my mixed and multicultural background? So, you know, it's complex. And you, you know what? A great podcast that I was listening to um, was Code Switch. And I actually put it in my anti-oppression social club app. Um, and shared it with people because it really was helpful. And it's all about identity and in particular indigenous identity mm. and how certain people are uh, attempting to reclaim, but how that identity can re be really difficult to reclaim. To say that you are an indigenous person and you belong to this certain tribe, um, that's really complex for people because they might come from multiple different tribes or they may have been totally assimilated into American culture um, and there's a lot of history behind that. There's a lot of reasons behind that. 
and they don't feel like they can. Um, and it was a great episode, podcast episode that, um, you know, I share. And I share a lot of that stuff with people in my anti-oppression social club. Um, so that's a resource that is available to people all the time. Yeah, so I I want to do um, some like rapid fire questions. And that was going to be one of mine was like, what's a resource or a book or a podcast that you're like really vibing with that people would like so if that was if you want to keep that as your answer that's totally fine or if you have other stuff that comes to mind no yeah code switch is great um uh let's see there's there's a couple um books so pedagogy of the oppressed which we read in my book club um last year that one's a really great one anything by Fanon France Fanon who does identity he was a psychologist um, and decolonizer. Um, so anything by France Fanon is really good. Um, we're currently reading all the white friends I couldn't keep, Mm -hmm. um, in my book club. And that's a really great one talking about identity and reconciling black American history with, you know, colonial American history. It's a really amazing book. Uh, becoming abolitionists is another really great one. We also read that one in my book club. Um, and that one is really good for dismantling and disrupting certain colonial notions, mm. um, not just about, you know, the jail system and crime and punishment system and law, um, but it's also just really good all around just to kind of dismantle this mindset of, you know, things need to be a certain way because they've always been that certain way and they really work for a certain set of people. Um, Becoming Abolitionist is an, an amazing book to just disrupt that and really dismantle what that means and how to move forward because abolition work isn't just a fantasy. It's, it's a, it's a planned structure of how to move forward as a society. So it's, it's a great book. So yeah, I would say that. And if you feel comfortable answering this one, it's okay. If you don't, what is, what do you feel like has been your biggest lesson thus far that you've had to overcome? Yeah, it's that I'm not an expert. (laughs) That's the biggest one. You know, I just, I grew up, especially in wellness, I grew up with, you know, if you have a PhD, you're an expert in this Mm. and you're valuable to society. If you have, you know, a 500 hour yoga teacher training certification, you're an expert. Um, I had to learn that that's not the case. And that there are a lot of people who have a lot of certifications, a lot of PhDs who cause a lot of harm (laughs) and who are spreading misinformation, who are appropriating other people's cultures. And that's not um, necessarily something I want to be a part of. And so, yeah, it's it's taken a lot of um, self-reflection to realize that I'm not an expert and that's okay. That's totally fine. I can still help people and not be an expert. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. I was talking about that this weekend with my cousin too, that like, if you have a degree or you have a certification, people automatically trust you. And in my work with helping people from Trump with trauma healing, like I get a lot of people who like, I was working with a therapist and they told me I had to forgive my abuser, like stuff like that. And it's like, just cause you have the degree doesn't mean you're not causing harm and you're not then just doing whatever you want after you have that. So yeah, I love that. Um, And then I guess my last question for you would be what piece of advice would you give to POC who are 
working on reclaiming their spirituality or their culture? Take your time. <laughs> Learn from a lot of people, as many people as you can, um, and just do your best. It's not a perfect experience. It's not going to be a perfect journey. And it's not going to look the same as other people. It's very individual. Um, and it's okay to walk away from certain things, right? If something doesn't feel right, it's okay to walk away. Even if you spent years on it, it's totally fine to walk away. Um, you know, it might be a, a, a bit painful for the ego, <laughs> but that's something that you can overcome. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, the overwhelm, just embrace the overwhelm and talk to people. Don't do this journey alone. Don't do reclamation work alone. Do it with other people. Um, be a part of community. Seek community. Seek people who have a similar experience as you, um, who are willing to take you down that road with them. And, and you know, just um, know that overwhelm is a natural part of the process, but you don't need to stay stuck in it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yeah, that's what I Awesome. So where can we find you? Where can people work with you? What's your like favorite place on the internet? <laughs> <laughs> I know the internet is changing every day. I feel like people are in a love hate relationship with Instagram right now, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that is still my preferred platform. Um, I have been taking social media breaks here and there just to kind of, you know, go through uh, a little bit of a mental health reset. Um, so that has been really helpful in the last couple months, but that is still where people can find a lot of information. My, my thoughts in particular to social justice issues, politics, pop culture, that kind of thing. Um, you can find me on Patreon. It's my first and middle name, uh, Costanza Eliana, and you can find that on my website, embodyinclusivity.com. Um, and my app, the Anti-Oppression Social Club, that is my baby. It's something that I have been fostering for a really long time. And I now feel like I'm, it's getting on its way to being a, a really beautiful space. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of plans for it this year. Um, and that's a really, you know, if you want to divest from regular social media, that's a great place to be because mm -hmm. that's what most of us are there to do. We're there to um, unpack our identities we're there to process um, certain, you know, uh, events um, that are affecting society. And it's just a really beautiful space. It's where I hold my book club. Book club is totally free. Um, and there are other uh, subgroups inside of that that are also free and paid if you, if you want to be a part of it. So, yeah. Awesome. And of course, we'll put all of that in the show notes um, with links and everything. And I just wanted to say thank you for coming and having this like really rich, um, but grounding discussion. And yeah, so until uh, next time, everyone, goodbye. If you love Witchy and Weird podcasts, support us by donating monthly for as little as 99 cents at anchor.fm slash witchy and weird slash support. You can cancel at any time and 100% of the proceeds go directly to the pod. Or, if you don't want to commit to a monthly donation, buy Amanda a coffee at ko-fi.com slash wishyandweird to help fuel them while they record, edit, create, and upload content for the podcast. And if you're feeling extra generous, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and tell your witchy and weird friends about us too. Bye!